1: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Prizman, and it is such a delight to be joined today by Alex McElroy, a non-binary writer based in Brooklyn. Their debut novel, The Atmospherians, was published in May by Atria. Their other writing appears in The Cut, Buzzfeed, Vulture, GQ, *L*, Vice, The Atlantic, Tin House, and elsewhere. Alex, it's such a pleasure to see you.
2: It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, Alex the atmospherians is a satire that feels like a, a weird um prediction of about the future.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um tell I'm me out about out as
2: Nostradamus right now. Yeah. This is my yeah.
1: And you do oh. have a character named Cassandra and Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, who uh visualizes futures. So. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's scary. Um <laughs> tell me about the phenomenon of the man horde.
2: Yeah, the manhords are a phenomenon in which white men come together uh, without any prompting. They just sort of come into a group of normally between like four and ten, uh, and they start doing tasks, and those tasks range from anything from the mundane of like um, picking cabbages out of an old woman's garden, uh, to helping someone replace their tire, uh, to eventually becoming more malevolent as the book goes on. At some point later on, there are man hordes that like break a window at a nail salon. Uh, there are man hordes that like harass people. Um, And what ends up happening is that after this phenomenon, all the men have no memory whatsoever of having done it. So it ends up being almost like a biological phenomenon where they engage with it and then they move on, have no memory whatsoever of it happening. And then they just sort of like go back to their lives.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like, there's a a hint of zombie there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sense of like, I guess like my, it's, I can think of like my philosophical thinking behind it. Yeah. It's like i was really interested in a kind of like boys will be boys mentality and like mm-hmm. what that looks like when it's brought to its most absurd logical extreme, right? And what that looks like in this case is that it it's like just men being men, which is I think when there are conversations around it, like in the media, in the book, um, it really takes that form of trying to excuse this behavior, again, is just like a biological phenomenon. It's something that these men cannot help but do. Um, And I was curious about the ways in which the infantilizing of that language um, immediately in like the immediate sense hurts the people around them. But I think over the long-term eventually comes to really debilitate the men themselves who are taking part in these hordes.
1: Yeah, Um, and it's, it was such an interesting thing that you pointed out. Like even in the most innocent seeming man hoard situations, um, it's f- fucking scary. If a group <laughs> of men starts folding your laundry without, I mean, Absolutely. weird thing to talk about consent right here, but uh, yeah. wow.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need permission to fold laundry. I think mm-hmm. it's like that. Yeah.
1: I, if if there's one takeaway from your, daughter- <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm realizing now sometimes when I get my laundry done it comes back folded and I guess I have consented to like that <laughs> so, like, I, but they fold so much better than I do so yeah, like I, absolutely I guess, so I approve
1: and you pay for it so there you
2: yeah, go. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> part of the deal
1: <laughs> um and then of course the other really prescient thing I found was that the protagonist Sasha Marcus um has a cancellation that I found echoed later in the um, Chrissy Teigen debacle.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, so what's interesting, I I guess like I would say like a difference between like Teigen and Sasha is that um, Teigen has a lot more power than Sasha does. And I think that that's a real undercurrent of this book is like what happens when a generation of people who don't really have a safety net end up going into like an influential, influencer career, right? And I, um, this is like a much, very far away from the question that you asked, um, but I was sort of obsessed with this book, um, Kids These Days by Malcolm Harris uh and in that he, and it's the making of millennials and it mm-hmm. looks at the economic conditions that are unique to millennials and that was a huge influence to me when i was working on this book and one of the things that he says and that i've been paraphrasing it so long it's like i've been playing telephone <laughs> with myself who read the book years ago so i have no idea if i'm getting it right anymore um but i think of it as like there are three ways to make money as a millennial, which is to be a superstar athlete from age three onward, um, to be an absolute savant and get into the best schools from age three onward or to accidentally go viral, (laughs) right? And I I think for the people who accidentally go viral, um, they are often not like rich people, like the people who are sort of thrust into this life. And I think in a world where we don't really have the uh, economic safety net, that I like to think of like mid tier influencers as really fascinating, as like you would call them like the middle managers. Like, we don't have like the corporation or anything like that where you can go to. Instead, we have a bunch of people who are like hawking the best type of spoon um instead of like and they're like they're spending their life talking to their ten thousand followers about a spoon that they just got in the mail and that is their career right and sasha is one of those people right and that i guess that was a long-winded way of saying she is not the exact same thing as someone no. yeah um and which i think is important for i hope creating some empathy with her but essentially what happens is she has a guy who's harassing her he's just become obsessed with her and she more or less tells him to fuck off and says like the world would be better if you weren't in it. Um, and then this man ends up killing himself and blaming her for it. Uh, and that is, that happens pretty early. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. No, you're not um, spoiling yeah. anything. Um, but uh, yeah, so she ends up um, after this man kills himself, she ends up receiving the blame for that. And she becomes sort of the, uh, the target of a lot of right-wing activists, the target of a lot of men's groups And she just can't find work anywhere. Her name is kind of thrown in the mud. She can't get a job. She's sort of stuck in her house because she had nothing. She has her only sort of foundational job is that she is a host um, at a uh, Midwestern fusion restaurant called Gravy. Spilled
1: with cheese. (laughs) <laughs>
2: with two es, yeah, absolutely not not as you would predict, um yeah, that is, um, but she works there, but even after her um brush with fame, she loses that job um because even her work there um is sort of tinged with the infamy that she receives, and I guess, like my point of that and and I think what's like um to uh wade into the dangerous territory of having a take about cancel culture, um I would say that I think the what has been clear over the last few years is that when cancel culture actually happens it normally hurts um more vulnerable people than it does um people like barry weiss right who's fine and is now making like a million dollars on substack you know it's not um the people who will like legitimately be cancelled and like lose careers are the people who can be tossed aside a lot of and I don't and I think Sasha has like a lot of privilege so she's not like extremely vulnerable um she is someone who does not have the safety net of like parents to go to she's not someone who has um like a 401k or anything like that that she can like pull off she just has dwindling savings um and I think it's easier for her to be um pushed aside because it would be inconvenient for people to take her side
1: yeah and it it you show just how much influencer culture is so individualistic, and there there's no community in, involved. There's no there's she's an entrepreneur, girl boss on her own, and so if that gets taken away, there's not much left. Um, and I also um in terms of the harassment she was facing, as someone who has just dealt with a little sliver of that, absolutely understand why, even though I wouldn't want Sasha to be my best friend, um, why she would be fed up enough to, to wish someone dead. Yeah. Um, which is again very different from Chrissy Teigen who just like didn't like the looks of this lady
2: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah again there's like a, but I think the I think the through line is there right I mean there are resonances between the two of them absolutely and I think um, you know for the same reason that like um about to make a very <laughs> extreme comparison but think like if, if we think of like celebrities as like Greek gods or something like that, like that argument that gets thrown around, right? Then like, how is Tegan like a metaphor for something that happens individualistically and in, um, people who live, whose lives aren't notorious. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that, I think definitely the resonances are supposed to be there. And yeah, so, and Tegan is happening at a much different scale, um, but I guess like the shape of it is still there, right? Like the. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I don't think, john legend has left her or anything but,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah she still seems pretty fine sasha
1: yeah. loses her uh boyfriend but not yeah. the same level
2: yeah um he was not the same level of talent as john Legend. So, <laughs> <yes>. oh, yeah <laughs> yeah
1: the world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again but after this past year getting back to feeling normal takes time As much as I've loved seeing friends and colleagues IRL again, with that excitement comes a good deal of dread. If you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always offer the advice we need. Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. More than 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app and schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapist from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue with thousands of licensed therapists available to match with you. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MARISREVIEW. That's $100 off when you use code MARISREVIEW at Talkspace.com. Such a big part of probably what Malcolm Harris is talking about and, and you're showing in this novel is that the attention economy has become the main economy for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so I found the title of the book incredibly interesting. Explain what being an atmospherian means.
2: Yeah. So being an atmospherian I, um, is being an extra, being a background. Um, I stole this term there are like levels of like gratitude that I have to give for this being the title of my book. I essentially had like a book without a title. And then I listened to this, um, 99% invisible podcast about atmospherians, uh, in which it describes sort of the role. And then, uh, my former partner, she said, um, Oh, that would be a great title for a novel. And, and then I, like, asked if I could use that. Um, and, and that eventually became my novel title. Um, but I think the idea of it, I was really struck by, right? And which, um, and I do think, like, influence comes from, like, all these different ways. Like, we're always just sort of, like, cherry-picking uh, from whatever we sort of pass in the street. Um, but to be an Atmospherician is to be in the background. Uh, for the cult that Dyson and Sasha produce, um, Dyson sees it as a as something to strive for, um, for these men to, rather than try to be at the center of things, to have power, they should instead strive to be in the background, let other people go in front of them. Um, And Dyson is someone who is a career extra in films. Uh, He is films and TV and commercials. Um, He is also, I guess, I would say like a magical extra, um, (laughs) which is like, um, also sounds like the worst, like, Disney movie of all time. Ooh, the magical um, extra. Yeah, the magical extra. Um, so, but he is someone who, whenever he appears in the background, um, whatever he is in does phenomenally well. Like um, people buy whatever ad he's in, people watch whatever show he's in. However, whenever whenever he is given a main role, everything collapses. Um, and he is really disturbed by this in ways that he doesn't really want to let on. He talks about it to Sasha a little bit, but that's really it. Otherwise. Um, he is someone who uses his own history and his own, uh, I would say failures and his own, um, what to say failures and flaws, um, to create a, like philosophical framework for how people should be, right? And I think that's something that happens in like a lot of ways for Dyson. And something that happens with how he treats food and how he sort of uses that. I guess I was thinking so much about the ways in which Dyson understands that maybe what he's doing He's embarrassed by how he has been cast aside as an actor and he is ashamed of how he treats his own body. And rather than try to deal with those things, he instead tries to impose them and make them and normalize them through other people. Right. Like if you can just like, it's as if like if he can reach like the 51% threshold of like other people doing this, it will no longer be abnormal. It'll just be what everybody's doing. Right. And so he's like literally trying to like taint the water of like other people's lives rather than accept the ways that he in fact needs a lot of work <laughs> yeah
1: and it's and, and Dyson and Sasha but especially Dyson is so good at I mean of course he wants to start a cult like he's going into this wanting to start a cult because yeah. he has these ideas um that he's mostly made up or you know <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um used his experience to um to come up with an arbitrary list of of things that are wrong and yeah. um, wants to provide an easy answer, Absolutely. Uh, to to try to help people. Yeah. Um, and the, and then, of course, the way for a cult to succeed is to get attention. So the atmospherians are all supposed to be in the background, and yet they need a spotlight too.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that's something that I was really interested in. A couple of the reviews have brought it up and I've been, I've really loved the reviews that have been, have noticed what is essentially a contradiction at the core of this book. And I think that that's, was absolutely intentional. It wasn't like, whoops, (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, um, should have seen that one coming. Um, But I mean, it's very clear to me that Dyson is someone who is taking charge in bringing people into the background, right? Like he is like I will be the center of the background, right? Like yes. he's and which I think was really curious to me, I started writing this book. Um, it seems like everyone started writing their books who came out this that came out this year like at the turn of the Trump presidency mm-hmm. in like 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, But I was really curious about what seemed like grifter culture, which is like, obviously did not appear um, when Trump was elected. Um, But as uh, Kevin Young wrote about um, in Bunk, right? Like it's a huge American tradition, you know? Melville was writing about it in The Confidence Man like a century and a half ago, right? So like we, um, so it's always been there and it's been really integral to like the American experience. And I was curious about just how people take advantage of the desire to help. Um, And that seemed like really, without even knowing it, like I don't think Dyson and Sasha know that what they're doing is wrong. They just have, I I think that there are people who have been, which is also really interesting to hear this book called like an internet book because very little of it occurs online. But I do think that my characters are poisoned by the internet. Um, It's again, it's as if that language has come to them um, and they are like, you know, we don't really know what to do. They're in crisis. We're all in crisis. We don't know what to do. And they think, what can we do to help is essentially the driving purpose for the cult. Like they look at it as if like they essentially are like their philosophical framework is like a mug that says white man's tears right like <laughs> you know and like that seems to be like the central premise of how they will fix things right like if we can collect enough white man's tears <laughs> um and just like pass the chalice around um then we can like save the world and i think that that's i think that there is something inherently good in that but they have been shaped by as we talked about the attention economy right like they I believe in their project as much as I don't believe in how they go about doing it.
1: Yes. Like,
2: I believe that, you know, white men should step aside from power, right? But I think that the ways in which Dyson does it is a way that will continue to center him as a white man in the middle of this project. And that was something that seemed to be happening, especially a lot uh, in this desire to help out, this desire for people to um, do good. Um, I guess I was curious about how do you... How do you make the world a better place without centering yourself? Right. And maybe that's a problem that like only I am facing. Um, uh, but, <laughs> yeah, um I, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to project this onto other people. Um yeah.
1: I um I can't imagine you're alone. Yeah. Thank um you. and yeah, there's the the Virgo part of me understands. You. Oh,
2: you're a Virgo as well. Great. Yes. Happy oh Vir- yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um likes the idea of having neat little boxes that you can put men in and so there are Dyson comes up with 12 archetypes yeah. <laughs> of the kinds of men you might experience and th- those two are of course incredibly arbitrary and yeah. um not the best tool to helping men find their basic humanity <laughs> say yeah yeah um but it's so nice to imagine that there's like this neat solution that we never tried, Absolutely. never occurred to us.
2: Well, well, I think that that's what makes something like, I mean, we've I wrote about this a little bit for Vulture when the book came out, but like my idea about the reasons why we're sort of obsessed with cult, culture um, is that life is hard. Like we have a lot of stuff to do right now. And like, it would be so nice if someone just gave us the answer. Right. And so like in the middle of we are super engaged with this idea that like we want things to be good and easy for us. um, But we also don't have we literally do not have the time to figure out what is right. And the American project, I think, is so interested in like truth and like justice or at least like the, you know, um, capital T, capital J versions Mm -hmm. of it that are like abstractions rather than sort of literal like muddy hands version of it. Um, But I think that what these groups do is that they offer those abstractions, and they tell you what is right. And you don't really need to think about it. I mean, something I thought about I in the early process of writing this book, I read um, Dianetics, I didn't get too far in it. Um, But something that I love, or that I not loved, but I found really intriguing about that book is that Hubbard has this way of um, he will define terms with footnotes um, and he does it for the first couple words, the words that I didn't, that are either neologisms or words that are just extremely obscure. And then like the fourth one will be a word that I do know the definition too. Um, but he will offer a definition that is a little bit different from how I had it. And I think that that kind of destabilization of truth was really curious and I think that that was like a really fascinating I guess we can literally call that gaslighting right <laughs> like um like how um that might be the first time it has been appropriately no um, but, <laughs> but no uh but I think that that was really curious to me because I would I absolutely understood the appeal of like oh my god I got it wrong and now thankfully someone is telling me what the right answer is and, and like, then of I course
1: don't, Dyson yes. um Creates his aphorisms uh, that sometimes make sense, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. as as Sasha calls it, the cadence of wisdom without the actual thing, yeah yeah,
1: yeah. um, Alex, we should take a moment now to discuss New Jersey,
2: okay. excellent. yeah, <laughs> thank you. this is this is no one has asked me about New Jersey yet. So oh no, maybe I think Greg Monney did a little bit. yeah. so so you're from Jersey?
1: I'm from Jersey, great. although, the the only thing I really knew about the Pine Barrens growing up was that the Jersey Devil lived there and I was terrified yeah. of it. Same, yeah. Um, but what I did very much appreciate, which felt like my own little safe space was the mall. Yeah.
2: yeah and I, I love how
1: you talk about the mall in the book as kind of a, I'm, I'm gonna find this, and, and as like a repercussionless place. Uh, Like as a liminal um, space where the future doesn't exist, and I I find it. I have
2: my like my stolen Edna St. Vincent Malay line: "The mall (laughs) is the kingdom where nobody dies." Right.
1: Yes. 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 And and I I find it so interesting too that the mall in Severance um, Mm -hmm. played a kind of similar role. you know what, let me take that back because yeah. we don't need to get into that. That would be a spoiler, Alex,
2: I don't wanna yeah. Do that. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Sick of managing your finances with buggy spreadsheets or have an inbox overflowing with bills or simply afraid of checking your bank statement, then it's time you take back control of your financial life with Truebill. Truebill is the all-in-one personal money app that works for you, empowering you to save more, spend less, and see everything happening with your finances. When your finances are spread across dozens of apps, you never know how you're actually doing. Famous for helping members save thousands, Truebill's all-in-one app helps you get smarter with your money with a clear financial picture, visual budgeting, powerful bill cutting tools, and control of unwanted subscriptions. Truebill's expert negotiators help their members save an average of 20% on bills like cell phones and internet. Together, Truebill's 2 million plus members have saved over $100 million. Like Josh G says, 10 out of 10 recommend this app for anyone trying to budget and control your expenses all in one place. Take control of your financial life with Truebill today at Truebill.com slash Maris. Don't keep losing money. Go to Truebill.com slash Maris. You can save hundreds a year. Truebill.com. Slash Maris, yeah. I guess let's go back and say, um, is there anything particularly New Jersey-ish
2: <laughs> about the mall? Yeah. About, about
1: about about the novel. The... About like, yeah. like about how that um, how New Jersey informs Sasha and Dyson's psyches.
2: Yeah, I mean that that's so hard to know because like this is the type of thing that like. Um, I should probably like work out with like my therapist and maybe like a past life reader or something like that. Like, um, there's something so like spiritual about the way that like New Jersey probably informs this book. Um, <laughs> I, I think of, I mean, for Dyson and I think New Jersey is a place of elsewhere. At least it always has been for me growing up and especially I grew up in small town Jersey. Um, so there was never anything to do Um where I was from. And so the desire was always to be to another place. And I think that that, um, I think I can, you know, stretch that out into this kind of like metaphor of striving, right? This desire to be elsewhere. And I don't necessarily think that striving is a bad thing. Um, I, I think that it, again, that's sort of a term that is weaponized against people who are more vulnerable, like um, that, like, if you are striving, you know, then it's seen as like a problem. Whereas if you just crush everyone beneath you, then it's like totally normal, right? And <laughs> yeah. People who are allowed to crush um, versus people who are like um, pushed aside for striving. Um, but I think that definitely that sense of wanting to be elsewhere is a huge part of this book. Right. And I think it's also, what was important for me, like for the longest time, I wanted this book to be set in Oregon. And there was really no reason for that, other than that, like, I went to college there. And so I was like, oh, like that would be like an end. Um, Rajneesh Purim was there. So I was like, you know, thinking about that cult and about this idea of like, um, the sort of go West and remake yourself sort of ideal. But eventually I came to terms with that. Like, I think a lot of novel writings, you just need to like pull from like what you know, right. And like, and I knew New Jersey and I could write about New Jersey in ways that I could never write about um, about Oregon. And I knew like how the state, the state was set up. I knew where people could drive to. I knew um, that there was a sense, New Jersey for me was also seemed like a place of, failure. And I don't mean that in like a, um, like everyone from Jersey, is. I just mean, I very much at like 18 went to school across the country, because I was like, I need to get out of here. This is my home. I want to go someplace else. I want to either like go to the city, or I want to, um, you know, go across the country and find a new life for myself. Um, But I also think that it was absolutely necessary. I think any sort of project that moves into a new self risks eliminating the foundation that allowed you to even move. That, that seems like extremely like wishy-washy. Um, but I think that I was really interested in like the holistic environment that would allow these characters to want to do the things that they are doing. There's also, a, it's like that would give them the sense of like, like for Sasha, like returning home to her hometown is a bad idea it is a failure when she goes back with her boyfriend Blake she's embarrassed
1: Mm -hmm. in a lot
2: of ways for Dyson he's returning home and he thinks they think think that they can remake themselves back in this sort of crucible of childhood where they're like essentially and because it is their home state like it is that sort of crucible of trauma for them right um so they need to adjust to that there's also as I think I put when Sasha describes New Jersey early on like New Jersey is like the little sibling to New York. It's always in the shadow of another yes. place, yeah. and so these are characters who are also constantly in the shadow. Even when Sasha is more influential than, say, Cassandra, um, she is still in Cassandra's shadow in a way because Cassandra's wealthier than her. She has greater connections. Um, even by like the marker of like, as Sasha says, like I had more followers than her and like a greater sort of reach, like. Cassandra knew more people Cassandra. Yeah, exactly. Cassandra knew how to get into the parties and that was like more important. And for Dyson, he again is always wanting to be more and I think exceed his own limits. That's I think there's a world in which Dyson could just be like, actually I could just be a great extra and then live his life, not really want to do anything. um, But instead he continues to strive for what he's incapable of doing. And I think that ends up being his real downfall by the end of the book.
1: And you are, of course, so good at showing that body image issues are not a, on a binary. (laughs) And um, yeah, Dyson growing up as playing the role of the fat kid. Yeah. um, Comes with its own bucket of trauma.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think just like the elimination of like, who he might actually be, right? This constant performance of being something for other people rather than being himself, um, which again, eventually catches up with him and that he, he knows how to perform himself. He knows how to like, as you say, doing the performance of the fat kid. Um, and then later on in life, as he quickly tries to um, detach from that self to like lose weight very quickly and dangerously It ends up being its own kind of problem, which I think, again, probably relates to my very um, woo woo. If you like lose the foundation of who you are, like you risk a great deal of um, like psychological damage because that's what happens to him. He just wants to leave behind that other younger self without actually seeing the ways in which he can um, love that younger version.
1: And of course, diet culture is as American as hucksterism. I mean, they're they're intimately combined. Right. Yeah. Alex, this has been just such a pleasure. Um, before we go, please recommend some books for us.
2: Okay, great. So I'm actually doing an event with him tonight. So maybe this is cheating, um, but I highly recommend Image Control by Patrick Nathan. Um, I've absolutely loved the book. Uh, I'm really excited to talk. To Patrick, it won't be tonight when you're listening. Yeah. Um, but um, um, it was but a great event, though. Yeah, yeah it it, w- it was an excellent event. It was an excellent? Um, find the recording, um, but Patrick is extremely smart, and I think it's one of the first. It's dealing with a lot of the same themes of my book, and um, how it is engaging with visual culture. How I think it's also engaging with forgiveness, wrongdoing, how we sort of make right. Mm-hmm. um our own mistakes uh another book and i will say like is like hugely influential to me as a writer um the stories of deborah eisenberg i think are really incredible and i think tonally were pretty different um but her willingness to i think stare into the face of contradiction and hypocrisy um was always so moving to me and I think I
1: find that in your descriptions, Alex.
2: Okay. Thank you. Um, that's yeah, the best compliment, but yeah, I I love Eisenberg's work and someone who I like return to all the time, especially when I'm like stuck and unable to write. So absolutely recommend her.
1: Love it. Um, thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.